Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Have a Little Insight, the podcast where we talk to people about their personal stories, lived experience, and expertise in the hopes of creating a kinder and more understanding world. Today, I'm joined by Zipporah Kingsbury. Hi, Zipporah. Thank you so much for being on the show. Zipporah is, um, and correct me if I get this wrong, but a somatic intimacy relationship educator and breathwork specialist who um, has traveled the globe helping or coaching, probably is a better word, high achieving adults feel safe, seen and confident to experience emotional and intimacy up levels in their personal and professional lives. So today we're going to dive into healthy human relating, the well-being of intimacy, and uh, maybe a couple other bonus alternative topics for you. So hi, Sabara. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really, I think about the original conversation that we had off, off live. Um, and I'm really excited to see where we go today. I'm just completely here for the ride. <laughs> That's usually how it goes for yeah. me too. I mean, there's always an understanding and idea in mind when we, um, when I start these episodes, but I never really know where they're, where they're going to go. So the first thing I'm curious about is, and I've been hearing the word a lot lately, somatic. So what, what does that mean, somatic intimacy? Yeah, great question. So when we go to talk therapy, we're addressing the way that our mind reacts to our environments, right? It's all through the mind. It's talk. Um, when we're working in a somatic sense, we're actually working with how the body is reacting and impacted by our environments. Um, there's so many studies out there today that show that we lodge those um, traumatic or um, lack unpleasant experiences in our body and not just our thoughts. And so it's all about creating a felt sense. You start to understand um, the body. The body communicates through sensation, through felt sense. Um, and that's kind of a short, you know, description of what somatic means and how, what, what areas we work with and pay attention to. Yeah, that, um, that makes sense to me. I've been to talk therapy and I remember something my therapist used to focus on a lot when I talk about, for example, experiencing anxiety, he would be like, close your eyes. Where do you feel that in your body? And, and what does that feel like yeah. for you when you're experiencing anxiety? So um, it's nice to have a better understanding of that word. But yeah, getting in touch with how things manifest in your body as well as in your mind yeah. makes uh, makes a lot of sense to me. So when we were um, offline, like you said, we talked about a lot of things. So I'm excited to see what happens too. We had said that we should have hit record then and we didn't, but that's yes. okay. Um, so I wrote down a couple of different questions. And I guess my first thing is what... Um, what is it like? What is health, well-being of intimacy, like healthy relating? Like, what does that, I guess, mean to you? And then, in terms of maybe sharing some experience from how you've seen it manifest in our world. Yeah. Well, I'll start with sharing in the redefining intimacy methods that I work with. Is we have, I think it's five five pillars, five aspects, and it starts with chi and energy, goes to physiology, physiological. Um, emotional, behavioral, and relational. So if you see those all like a chain, right, from bottom to top, from the chi ending in the relational, all of those aspects impact one another. And so when I talk about the well-being of intimacy, it means going to that core which is chi and energy, and then physiology, because you just said it's like when your therapist says, well, close your eyes. And how does that feel in your body? That's physiological. We have to understand how the emotions are impacting the physiology and then how that's impacting our behaviors. And I find what most people do is when they want to learn how to be intimate or have better intimacy, if that's what they will call it. Um, and here I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about connection. And I want to, I want to address that as well is I'm talking about emotional connectivity is that, they'll go to, let me learn mechanics of it, right? Like, oh, I have to do this in order to have greater intimacy. It's a lot of doing. But my approach when it comes to well-being of intimacy is we have to really um, dissect and almost excavate all the hardness and constriction and the armoring internally so people can actually start to feel intimacy. And that's where 
intimacy actually starts to impact the well-being of every area of your life, whether that be your health, whether that be your emotional health, whether that be your work environment or your um, relationships with your children or parents or partner. Um, and that's what I mean by well-being. It's more of a holistic approach to intimacy. And I'm glad that you touched on that because that was something that we talked about. Because when we, I think when you hear the word intimacy, a lot of people default to sexual intimacy or like being intimate with a partner. And, um, but there are intimate relationships that we experience that aren't um, sexual in nature that can just be very close bonds. And it's interesting to me when you mention intimacy in like professional relationships and work. And like, for some reason, my brain defaults to like, you know, people are like, oh, that's my work wife or that's my work husband. Like we do have these close bonds and these people we yep. rely on, right? Absolutely. Um, when you talk about unarmoring, immediately I, my brain was like, well, that's that's kind of scary. Like we rely on that kind of like protection so much. And I think that, that's an interesting thing to expand on is there's a difference between like having good boundaries and taking care of yourself and like being armored, I would imagine. Yes. And so I think of boundaries and borders, right? It's such a simple analogy. It goes, it's so old school. I think of my teachers teaching me that analogy, but you think boundaries are created for what we are experiencing in our present moment state physically psychologically, emotionally, energetically, right? It's what's happening now. I'm going to create a boundary for what I have the capacity now. And so when we set that boundary and we share that boundary, it's actually letting another closer to us because it means now they know what the perimeters are of how, where we can relate. So that actually means there's less guardedness because they know. And for mm -hmm. us, because we've set that boundary we actually, our system starts to feel safer. So if you see when I talk about boundaries, there's closeness and openness. When it comes to the armoring, that to me, what starts to happen when we live a life without knowing how or setting boundaries, because now it's gone extreme and now we have to protect. Like we put up those borders, we call them. We put up those solid walls, which aren't permeable. They don't move. They're not setting their perimeter. They're saying, you know, stay the fuck away. This is a no, right? They're, they're, they're pretty intense. And, mm -hmm. and you can, we can actually, they feel different in the body. And so one is a strong protection. No, because there's been a lifetime of not saying no, not knowing mm -hmm. how. And the other is just like, Oh, I'm aware and in tune with what my state is right now. And so I'm going to set this boundary so I can have connection to my, the capacity that I'm available because I want to have that connection. Does that make sense? So they are two different, complete, completely different things. Um, and I will adjust, like when you said the armoring, de-armoring, it sounds so scary. And, you know, the way that I work with people and is gentle. I You don't want to push because, again, what set those borders and walls up because there is push. So if you have a qualified practitioner you're going to have someone who can really understand and listen. They could see it through your body language. They can hear it in the tone and the tempos of your language. Um, they're present enough to understand like, like you are guiding where that goes based on what's happening in your system. And that is something that gets paid a lot of attention to. Yeah. And I, I hear the difference when like, when you talk about boundaries and like in the present moment, so that allows you to be connected because if you're not practicing a boundary, there's no way that you can feel safe is how I'm interpreting what you're saying. And if you can't feel safe, how can you feel open to connect with another person? Yes. Yes. And, and it could be, I think, misunderstood that, oh my God, boundaries are creating these walls or pushing people away or, or boundaries. Someone wants to ask me, a client asked me, what's the difference between needing to stay in control and have a boundary? Mm, that's interesting. Great, right? great question. And I was like, well, one, you can most definitely misuse a boundary. So what is your intention when setting the boundary? And, you know, I said a few moments ago is, well, if our intention is, well, I'm aware that I have fear or I just don't have the capacity for this type of connection. It's not taking care of myself to say yes, but I want some type of connection. Like if it depends on our, our intention going into setting the boundary, because there can also be like, 
well, I want to control this person and I want to stay locked in this fearful cage. So I'm going to like creatively set this boundary where the relationship has no room to breathe. Hmm. Not sure if that makes sense. It's, it's a big topic. It, it had me thinking So if we want to create room to breathe and we need healthy boundaries to do that, how, how do you work on like, I mean, there's the age old saying, right? Like, well, maybe it's not age old, but I know I've heard it many times before where you engage in something, a behavior or whatever, like let's use a really cliche example of like a one night stand. And then you wake up the next morning, you feel terrible about yourself and you're like, whoa, I'm never doing that again. When I think about healthy boundaries, I think about avoiding having to learn through feeling like, oh, that wasn't right to me to begin with and feeling in the moment like something's off for me. I need to readjust how I'm interacting or how I'm going to proceed further. Um, yeah, and in that example you just used is, to me, I see that as an opportunity, that experience. It's like, oh, I did this. It felt really good at the time. And now I'm noticing emotionally, I don't feel so well about it. You know, I, I love, I geek out about unpacking things like psychologically and emotionally. <laughs> so it's like, well, there's stuff there. It's have, have a lot of self-judgment and shame come up. Like what underneath emotional patterns are starting to trickle to the surface? Like what stories of yours, um, emotional stories are starting to trickle to the surface. So I see this as an opportunity to just learn about oneself so I would ask those questions. Okay, interesting. I had a lot of fun. It felt really good. And right now it's like, oh my God, people are going to judge me. Oh my God, that was so wrong. Oh my God, you know, they're going to want to do it again. And I really don't want to do it again. You know, it's, it's, it's having that inquiry of what and why is it coming up for you? And then when we start to unpack that and start to understand that, I, I find there's a little bit more compassion, self-compassion in it. And then it could be like, okay, so now it's time for a new boundary, a new awareness about myself. I, I don't want to do this right now because emotionally I'm just not ready for it. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring up self-compassion. It's something I've been hearing a lot. I've been hearing a lot of like, well, I did an episode on mindful self-compassion a, a while ago, which was quite enlightening around being hard on ourselves and letting ourselves off the hook and talking to yourself like a best friend or a family member would talk to you. And then I've heard a lot lately about um, compassionate action and like, you know, being aware of something and then you have acceptance of it. And then what is the compassionate action to take mm -hmm. versus like beating yourself up or being maybe maybe you project in your heart on the other person. But there is a way that we can be compassionate and kind and learn about ourselves through these things. Yeah. 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 I, it's. It's interesting because we are conditioned to do the other. We're conditioned to beat up on ourselves and put Absolutely. down. Um, I often give clients a simple practice of self-appreciation every day, hmm. right? Because that puts them in the framework. It exercises this muscle that we're talking about. You know, it's just like, what do I appreciate about myself today? Because we're so used to saying the opposite, beating ourselves up for doing something, but really just more and more self-compassion. And if we can see things as, wow, I can learn from this. That that to me is the the light at the end of the tunnel is if we have an experience, whether maybe we reacted and did something maybe that was out of our integrity, um, maybe someone else um, did something towards us that we didn't like or or it was mutual. And if we can see that like, OK, so how is this working for me? What is in this that I can learn and take away from it? Because it's happened, right? So what mm -hmm. good is it gonna do if we beat ourselves up? It's like, okay, big breath, take a big breath in, let it go, let the nervous system calm because that, you know, our we're spinning up here. That means the nervous system is all agitated. We talk about well-being of intimacy. We want to be able to regulate our nervous system. And then, you, you know, you could regulate really lovely through bringing your breath down into your diaphragm, into your lower belly, taking a couple of slow cyclic breaths. And just still yourself and feel what you're feeling. So, so I might go off on a tangent here, but I just have, it's coming no, through me. So it. I'm going to go. All right. So we're in self-judgment. We did something. We're talking about these experiences or circumstances, you know, 
we're not in agreement with them. We judge ourselves for them. You're unpacking it. You're bringing in the compassion by calming your nervous system, but then feel, feel that angst, feel the upset, feel the anger because it spirals. These situations spiral out of control in our thoughts because you are actually controlling, trying to control not to feel the feelings. And that gets us into trouble because feelings aren't bad. Feel what it feels like. We started the call with this somatic felt sense, mm-hmm. feel what that anger, what that frustration, what that um, rage, you know, whatever it is, grief feels like in your body. Because the only way that I believe from my experience is that, or the quickest way that that's going to really soften and stop controlling you is to bring this attention to it. And then there's several steps in that, but start to identify what those emotions are as part of it. Yeah. It's interesting how much everything, even though there's a variety of different co- topics that are often covered on the podcast, anxiety, mindful self-compassion. Now we're talking about human relating intimacy, how much comes back to physicality. And I've done breath work before and it's quite profound and powerful and brings up like a lot of emotions at that time. I didn't even know I was experiencing around grief and um, someone close to me had passed away. And I was like, Oh my God, I thought I had, I thought I had felt through this and, and I didn't. And even in anxiety and like panic attacks, when I talk to people, just taking the time to breathe, because the more you can come back into your body, the more you can kind of my understanding at least is restore balance between what your brain is telling you and like grounding yourself. Um, And I think it's true. A lot of times we try to push down feelings, you know, because we, for me personally, the experience is I can't, I don't want to be tanked by this right now. And so let's just not, let's just not. Um, But once you've processed it and you feel it and it comes out, I mean, if you have a big emotional crying situation, for example, you might be tired after, but ultimately it feels better. And it it's like a little bit softer, I find in me. Yeah. And also you're, you've just set a boundary. You're like, well, in this moment, I don't have the capacity to feel this. Mm-hmm. And that's what often happens. And, and that's important, right? Our system knows we don't want to overwhelm or the nervous system already is probably agitated and on guard. So when we can have that wisdom and listen to the body, it's like, okay, no, right now I don't have the time. I don't have the capacity to process this, to sit with it, to feel it. Know and make a conscious choice that, well, I'm going to come back to this later. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so it's, it's building, cultivating this awareness muscle where you can start to, where we all can start to be more and more accountable for these parts of ourselves, So I love what you just said. It's like, no, right now is not the time. So, right. I'm not saying that right when it happens, you got to sit and feel because it might not be the time yet. Know that. Okay. So I'm going to come back to this. Otherwise, as we know, these aspects of self will continue to control your relationships, your behavior, your actions, and nothing will ever change. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I want to come back to the word accountable because I think that's a really great word. And I feel like it, it, it's um, like a two-sided word almost, being accountable to self and then by being accountable to yourself, also being accountable to the kind of human you're being with other people. And when I think about um, healthy human relating, I think about interacting with other humans, obviously, and um being accountable to them, but also like being accountable to myself. So accountable to myself, if I'm listening and taking everything in from you would be having healthy boundaries, learning from my experience, being compassionate to myself and accepting and allowing myself to feel my emotions. But then if we go to look beyond that and be better people in our world, how do we work on being accountable to others as well outside of just taking care of ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. That is such a tricky question. I want to go into that. It's such a tricky question because I find that statement, how do we be accountable to others? It can get messy Mm -hmm. because people can link that to um, obligation. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's a whole topic in itself. Um, My belief is that 
when we start doing everything you just spoke of, the um, starting to understand your feelings and needs, you're you're cultivating your emotional intelligence. You're you're taking more time to learn how to self-regulate your nervous system. You're um, somehow working on processing those old those old patterns. So each day, you know, I believe so we can show up every day as a better human. And though that seems like so much self-attentive work, the outcome is actually for your relationships mm-hmm. because without doing, because when you do that, now you're going to be more available for your loved ones. You're going to have more presence and listening skills to those around you. You're going to have more creative um, ideas and be able to build greater camaraderie. Um, you're just going to be more available for all of it, less reactive, less judgmental. You're going to, one, one of my clients, oh my God, my one of my clients, I just love the story. So he, an engineer, retired and his whole life, he very just, he's such so brilliant. And, but that brilliance was something that also kept him safe, right? Kept him from his vulnerability. And one of his, one of the stories that we were talking about is where, if someone wasn't doing it his way, you know, on a project, he, he there was like no acceptance there. Mm-hmm. It, it, the teamwork wouldn't work. Like it had to be his way because he knew how to get it done. Um, and so what happens when we start to do this work, it changes. It means we can be more in acceptance of hearing other people's way. And that's true collaboration and, and being able to be like, okay, so I wouldn't do it that way. And I don't even agree with how you do it, but I'm curious. I want to know why it works for you that way. So that, that feels different in the body. And you can probably understand by me talking about this, that absolutely impacts our relationships on every level in a different way. And to me, that's how we would be accountable to our relationships. And we meet in that place. Yeah. It sounds to me a lot about, um, being open and humble, you know, just realizing that, um, there's different ways and maybe that way doesn't work for you. And actually this is part of the basis of the show and how we actually ended up connecting, which I'm sure we'll get to is that, um, your, my way, your way, every other human's way that exists out there, we all have different modes of operating or different belief systems, different ethics, different morals. And just because your way might not be my way doesn't mean that it's wrong. And it's really actually interesting. I read um, a quote, I think I shared on Instagram recently um, from Rumi that said, you know, um, beyond right doing and wrongdoing, there's a field out there and, and I'll meet you there, you know, and just to come from that place of trying to understand and be open um, yeah, I, I feel that it's what humanity needs more of right now than anything is to be able to really get solid in, in our own grounded integrity, like know what our true North is here, know what my values are. And when I'm that solid and clear in who I am, I'm also going to be okay with how someone else is and who they are. Mm-hmm. Right? And that is that, that is that field. It's like, okay, great. And then, you know, I had, there was a question the other day about relationships. Um, I, I forgot the question, but it's from, from this place, it's, there's no expectation, right? There's just like, oh, and then we can make a choice. I want to hang out with you or I don't want to hang out with you. Our values match or they don't match, but it's more of a compassionate choice versus, ah, you're a terrible person. I don't want to hang out with you. Mm. It's just a completely different quality to it. Yeah. It's interesting when you say that, I think a lot about projection too, and being like, I don't want to hang out with you because your values are terrible and you're a bad person. Like that's very obviously like blunt and like dumbed down language, but that projection of like putting it all on the other person instead of also looking at ourselves and being like, you know, part of the reason this is a mismatch is because my morals and ethics and mm-hmm. I felt like saying boundaries, but maybe that's not true, but my morals and ethics are not in alignment with yours. Yeah. And that's why we don't match. 
in, and owning more of our experience and our process like that in terms of other people, as opposed to this like projection. I remember reading once about relationships and it was, um, I don't know, I don't think it was a true story, but it was like a woman who was like, oh, I won't date Italian men. They're all terrible. They break my hearts. They dump me every time. And we build these ideas around things instead of like looking at everything individually or with openness. And then fundamentally first looking at ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I believe we're conditioned to evaluate a situation or interpret the situation, but we're not nowhere along the way as, as we're growing up, are we taught what it is to feel? We're not taught what a feeling is. I don't know how many clients I work with that when you ask, what are you feeling? There's lots of story and interpretation and, and concepts being tossed out. And then when we sit longer and ask, but what are you feeling? They're blank. They don't, you know, I have um, charts that I've created, but they have no clue what a feeling is. And so I think part of this is just, it's not known. I don't know. Oh, I feel sad or I feel angry or I, you know, if it's about judging the other person or projecting and not, you know, owning what someone's choice, it's like, oh, I, I feel scared. I feel scared and nervous around them being different. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I don't I just think that people don't understand that idea that we're here talking about a lot of people, that concept, because it's so conditioned to just go right into the interpretation. Um yeah, of what, what someone else is doing or who they are. Um, we do it unconscious. Like, we don't even think about it when we do it. It just blurts out. Yeah, it was funny when you when you mentioned um, being scared. And often I think when when you think about, when I think about people being different or like operating in different ways or living different lifestyles, often there's a feeling of judgment or anger. But in fact, what that really is... Mm-hmm often, at least in my personal experience, is a base underlying feeling of fear. Yeah. Um, And I've often used this as an example in like the LGBT community when I've seen really homophobic males who are like, you know, I, I don't like this. I get hit on all the time. And I've often been like, that's what happens for women every day. But part of what's happening is, is you're just, you're just worried and you're afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a result, that's coming out in anger. And like, yeah. it's interesting to unpack the levels of an emotion like that. Yeah. Yeah. So important. I, I say, I, you know, imagine your emotions. I call them aspects, like living inside of ourself or our friends, right? They're parts of us. So put a face on them, right? Give an identity mm-hmm. to them. And then as we start to uncover them, imagine that they're coming over for tea, you know, and, and if, if anger or rage, say rage knocks at your door, and typically we wouldn't open the door in rage. I mean, we'd no. keep it in the closet. <laughs> There's scared shitless of rage. Um, but this time you've developed so much like groundedness in yourself and confidence that you can open the door and not react. You just stand there and rage is like, you know, fire and, and just like intense. But you're just standing there present. And eventually rage is like, it, it softens to anger. And so it's a little softer. And then it starts getting curious because you're not moving. Like they're like, they're like you know, why is this woman? Not, why aren't they slamming the door on me? But then they see that you're willing to be present with them. And so then it softens even more. Like there's such, it's infinite, the unpacking to eventually that emotion can come in into your house, into the, in through to your living room and maybe go all the way down to the core emotion of sadness. But now sadness is actually sitting on the couch with you, willing to drink a cup of tea with you and to be held, right? So that unpacking to get to that space, it simply takes your presence. And that to me represents love because until we do so, um, we are going to continue to run around being scared and in fear because that's what those aspects of us are feeling, right? If they're shoved in a Mm -hmm. closet for a lifetime, of course they feel scared. They want out, they want to be held, but you have to, we have to be willing to do that. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about not being reacting. I, I immediately flashed back to um, for a long period of time in my life, I was a late night bartender and I dealt with a lot of um, aggressive um, young males, often compounded with alcohol. And it's funny, it goes back to that non-reactive and almost the same saying that like you'll get more bees with honey than vinegar because oftentimes my coworkers would be sitting around being like, I don't know what to do. And I'd just go out and I'd be like, what's going on? And they'd be all mad. And you know, the rage guy you said at the door and they were going to get in a fight. And I'm like, well, I'm like, why don't you just come sit over here on the curb with me? And we'll just like have a chat and wait for your cab. And all of a sudden I would immediately wow. see like a softening. Now that didn't obviously always work, but more often than not, just going out and being calm and being centered and present made a huge difference in de-escalating that like that rage mode that you're talking about or that anger to a to a softening place where it almost looked like they felt like they were being seen. Like, oh, you mm. you're you're paying attention to me. Oh, okay, I'll sit, I'll calm down, let's talk it out. Um, that's a very everyday probably primitive example compared to what we're unpacking, but that was the vision I had in my head when you mentioned it. Yeah. Well, and that's important, right? Because if you, you know, if we respond from that way, even when moments may not be safe, we can quickly make a choice, mm -hmm. you know, like, like if we're, if, if it escalated and a woman had to say no or put up a strong boundary, you know, um, I think that's happens in that place of being that centered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know in my body, it's, it's definitely how I respond with people around me. It's like, Oh, like I'm aware of things. I'm aware of my center is I'm aware when I need to lean in and when it's time to lean back, you know, in any situation. So I love how you brought, brought that particular story in. Thank you. Oh, it's just what happened to come to my mind at the time. Um, well, I'm just looking quickly here in my notes to see if there's anything that we haven't covered. I know that we, um, one of the reasons, I guess we'll get into it because we're coming a little bit close <laughs> to time anyways, is one of the reasons we connected done. With, <laughs> uh, was that one of the surprise, we, the, the extras, the bonus for people, um, was that I was looking to understand a little bit more about, um, polyamory or non-monogamous relationships. And, um, that turned out when we originally spoke to be a bigger, more all-encompassing topic, which is why we've just talked a lot about human relating and intimacy. And one of the things that I really liked about what you said when we first met was um, using the word ethical. And um, that's something I wanted to kind of unpack with you more is what is um, like basically like the overarching topic we've talked about is being an ethical human and relating well to others by taking care of yourselves. But since we told people we'd talk about these bonuses, what would examples be of like ethical non-monogamy? Yeah. Well, first, it, I loved, I wanted to follow this path today of the human relating because when I think ethical non-monogamy or alternative ways of relationship, it's no different than monogamy. You you want to be an ethical human. You're bringing these same concepts and ideas into just with more people. But specifically, ethical non-monogamy, being in relationship with more than one person, um, first, it's going to look different. Like we can go for hours, I mean, so long on this topic because there's no cookie cutter way of what that looks like. But what the common thread is, is humans are going into these relationships consensually. So they might have... Um, multiple lovers. They might be in a primary partnership where they consensually date other people and they know those other people. And so the key word is, is consensual, um, mm -hmm. that, that it's a choice. And in these open relationships, it's actually celebrated. It's celebrated that um, a partner or lover is also in love with uh, someone else, getting their needs met from somebody else. Um, and it's kind of like, um, it's a whole ecosystem I, like I said, I'm going to just wait for your questions. I can go on and on about this. Like I said, there's so many different directions we can go on this topic. But I think when it comes to what I'm passionate about is making it more of the norm. Like I didn't want to separate it into a conversation outside of just human relating because um, I want to make this topic more normal. There are alternative ways for us to relate when we go into them with someone who has the shared values. Um, go I think ahead. 
I think the key word there for me that would start to normalize things is often we use the word alternate or um, different um, on a lot of different topics. I recently saw it on a TV show, you know, dealing with mental health and use and, and they were like, you know, I'm just different and I'm weird and, and we tend to other ourselves. And to me, that comes back to practices on self-compassion and like common humanity where we realize like all of these things that we think that differentiate us can actually help bring us together um, one of the things that's really interesting is to unpack is how do you how do you operate in these areas being ethically? And I understand using the word consensual, and I think that is important. I know for me, because we talked about this before, that mm-hmm. like that's not my like my compass because as soon as we talk about it, I'm like, I would be overwhelmed. Like I I know that I, I wouldn't be able to operate that way, but I've seen experiences in people where I feel like they don't feel balanced in those situations, even though it might be consensual. And so how, how do you navigate that and still stay? Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe you consent up front and you don't know what you're in for. And so how can you possibly troubleshoot that in advance? Or when you get to that area where you're like, oh, I said yes, but I'm not really comfortable with this. How do you renege and work that out? Mm-hmm. Um, it's no different for monogamy. I'm just going to start there for us yeah, to just yeah. think about that. Pause for a minute. Like that would happen in a monogamous relationship. I said yes, and I've changed my mind. I no longer feel like I want to be in this relationship, or I no longer feel in aligned with how the relationship is going. So I'm just starting there because I really want to bring out that it's no different. It's just more people involved. So it's mm. not that complicated. It means there there isn't the one thing different that I find with um, non-monogamy versus monogamy because there are more people involved is it almost forces you, forces us to really have to have the skill. Otherwise, it's going to get very complicated. So all these skills we're talking about, about human relating, it's for monogamy, you might be able to get lazy you know, and trip along. But when it comes to non-monogamy, what I've learned and experienced is you have to have like, um, I was a competitive bodybuilder 25 years ago. So you have to have some like big, big, big muscles there when it comes to your, your emotional intelligence and human relating and being able to have those tough conversations because absolutely they change. Um, and we go into those conversations and we talk about it. Right. And, and we, so I'll share personally, like I get really jealous and I have gotten really jealous. It it tends to be the, the fuel talking about my like story of always feeling need to be included, not having enough attention. Right. So you can imagine in a partnership that's open, that's often was the trip up of mine. And I know a myth people think that open non-monogamous people, or if you want to call it polyamory, polyamory, don't get jealous. And I'm just like, that's a huge myth because we're human. We're no different. Um, the difference is, is we have cultivated and devoted ourselves most many, the skills to work through it. So if I get jealous, I know it's not my partner's fault. I know it's not my lover's fault. I know where it's coming from. And if I could just bring compassion and use all my skills to be with my jealousy, identify what's happened physiologically in my body when I feel jealous, where is it coming from? And then start to understand what I'm needing. It might just be, oh, like he had a date and or he has a new lover and he's spending more time with someone else. Well, what am I needing? Well, I just want more cuddles. You know, I want more quality time. Right. So now I can get the outcome. Because now I can ask for that. But that takes, again, I might be talking a lot here, but it takes those steps. We have to be able to regulate our nervous system. We have to be able to do those steps about being accountable. And to me, that's self-love. When we are accountable, we do those steps to regulate that self-love. And is non-monogamy for everyone? I'm not an activist of non-monogamy. I do not believe it's for everyone. I've been in relationships with monogamous people. Um, I consider myself non-monogamous, yet I have a lot of monogamous tendencies because I love bonding. I love pair bonding. Um, I don't need to go out right now and have tons of sex. And that's another myth. 
That's what I want to touch on next. It's a complete another myth. Yes. Yeah. Did you want to take it from there? Well, that's what I wanted to to kind of do too is, um, is say, like, I think that's one of the myths when we hear of couples or people close to us who who practice non-monogamy or open relationships or however you want to label it is that these people are just in it so that they can have more and more and more sex and that it's not really about connection. And that's why I connected to when you use the word ethical non-monogamy, because I do believe like when I heard you, that was the difference maker for me that shifted my mind mm-hmm. is because I feel like also I have seen those situations where a couple's like, oh, we're in an open relationship, but it doesn't seem balanced. And one partner seems really unhappy um, and and busting that myth that it's not, you know, I mean, maybe there I'm sure there are people who are operating that way and using that term for that reason. But fundamentally, at the base of the culture, it seems like that's not really what that's about. And I wanted to kind of put a put a hat on that or a lid on it, so to speak. Yeah, you know. Again, I'm going to keep bringing this back to being human. You have some people who like more sex. You have some people who want more sex. You have some people who don't want a lot of sex. And that's going to happen in open relationships or monogamy. It's just, again, we're just doing it with more than one person. Uh, We're sharing emotional, sexual um, intimacy with more than one person. And the degree is very individualized. You know, I've I think because I'm I'm a strong energetic when it comes to sexuality. So my turn on is energy. I get turned on when I meditate for hours. It's that stillness. It's it's I had um um a good a good friend who used to joke that my um chakras were like an inverted V. So people okay. had to had to um um do me through through the crown chakra, like they had to have sex, like penetrate me from above. Um for, <laughs> yeah. And and so that because that's where my turn on is. And so physical sex, why I love it, it's not something that's my first go-to when it comes to connection. I'm more of an emotionally connected person, right? So, mm-hmm. but then you're going to have other people where, yeah, they will. I was in a relationship years ago with my primary partner and he was very sexual and that was his language. That And that was something that when we first got in, started a relationship together that he so beautifully it was very clear. There was nothing hidden. It was on the table. Like this was who he was. This, so he has a high sex drive. He, he loves connecting with other people. He's such a beautiful, conscientious human he is. Um, but that was his style. He liked that. Um, so I'm just saying we're all different. There's no answer there, but no, it's not just about sex. And for some people, if you look at people who don't want a pair bond, you know, like I talked, I have monogamous tendencies. I like to bond with somebody is they might call, be called like solo dancers. They, they, they're by themselves, but they have tons of lovers, mm-hmm. you know, for them there, it might be different, but also a lot of it is there is emotional connection there. There is emotional connectivity there. Um, and I swear I, the joke is non-monogamous people are always like, their calendars, right? Like it's, it's, it's more like trying to We talked about this before. We talked about this before. Yeah. So that's why I'm not a big, like, I'm like, like small amounts. Um, I just, I have, my life is so full, but I wanted to go somewhere with that. We'll come back to it. There was a piece I wanted to tap into about non-monogamy. We'll come back to that. Sure. Um, To go back to what you said about jealousy, I think that for me brought in the whole um, humanity and kind of like level playing field between monogamy and non-monogamy and being responsible for for your feelings and for your communication in relationship, even in conjunction with your feelings. Right. So um, I. I love John Gottman's seven principles of making marriage work. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read the book, but one of his examples in the book is of a married couple and the, they go to parties together and the man is constantly flirting with other women. And he doesn't think it's a big deal because he's very committed to his wife, but the wife is really upset by this. And so it starts to become an issue in their relationship because he doesn't think it's a problem, but it's in primary conflict with her her comfort and her boundaries and her ethics and her morals. And there's a two-part system to that. One, on the wife to explain, I think, and comment that she's uncomfortable. And this is a 
a violation for her in this bond, whether that's monogamous or non-monogamous, and to process that for herself. And then for the husband to also honor his partner and the needs of his partner in this situation. Um, and I think that normalizes relationship across the board in that way. Um, that owning our needs and and being aware of our feelings and what's triggering us and processing how much is about us and then communicating that with the people we're in relationship with. And that was a very normalizing example for me, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with jealousy, because I think jealousy is something we come into in all kinds of relationships. I mean, there's jealousy in sibling relationships, and that is certainly a very close intimate relationship that is definitely non-sexual at all, at least in my personal experience. So, um, you know, um, but there's, there's sibling jealousy all over the place in terms of attention from your parents or what toys you get to play with. And, and we're talking about children at that level that doesn't involve that at all. Um, so it's very interesting to look at that as a concept. And that's what gets passes. It it gets passes through, passes through us as adults. It's that Mm -hmm. same jealousy. It's just, it's whatever unmet needs were going on as a child, we're going into relationships with them. So when we can just become aware of them and, and I love the example you said of the, um, the flirting when he would flirt and she would get jealous and they, you know, process it, talk about it. One of the key signs where things need to change in a relationship is when all you do is process. Mm. And so, cause we can continue to listen to our partner's needs and hold space and, and work through it. But if it's a repetitive cycle, it'll eventually just start pulling the relationship down. Especially, you know, if we're talking, we're on the topic of non-monogamy is that's where, you know, you need to start questioning, inquiring, you know, is this a match? Mm-hmm. Are, are my needs being met? Are our values aligned? Um, and I'll share, I was in um, one of my partners, primary partner at the time, we ended up going through a conscious uncoupling, transitioning. And in that, we loved each other immensely. And I in no way wanted to let go of this relationship. We got along great. We had strong physical attraction. We were emotionally so bonded. Um, we were living together at the time, yet it had tripped something up in me that I needed to work with. Hmm. You know, if that makes sense, like it tripped up mm-hmm. a wire in me. It could be an old story, something from my childhood. Um, it wasn't meeting my needs in the moment. So the toughest thing in that is there was no other reason to end the relationship because it was we were amazing together, but it was killing me, my health, like Mm. literally. And I'm not exaggerating. Like I was crying every day and he finally came to me and he's like, we have to stop this cycle Mm -hmm. and we have to stop it because I love you. And so I want to share that story because that was an importance for us. We needed to look at, okay, so do I have the capacity, right? We talked about capacity earlier on. Mm -hmm. So it's not even saying you don't want this. It's not even saying you don't love somebody. It's saying, wow, right now we're not a fit. Um, a good friend of mine, Reed Mahalko, um, teaches on a topic called Date Your Own Species. Um, so I highly recommend pe- people checking that out because what he came up with this idea is um, even like we're, we have, there's different species. So even within non-monogamy, there's different species. Right. And so you got to find your species. Otherwise, um, you know, things are going to be left messy, Mm. you know, internally and externally. So we want to leave each other better than how we found each other. Right. One, leave the room clean. Yeah. I think that's a good tagline for operating in relationships in general. Leave it better than you found it, you know? Um, I want to be conscious of the time and I want to give you a chance because I know there was something you wanted to touch on that you didn't, uh, that you lost the train of thought on. I'm curious if it came back to you at all before we, um, start. I did. It's not coming back to me. So unfortunately I missed that personal story. That's okay. Um, one of the things I like to do, uh, at the end of an episode, and I know we've touched on a lot of things, but the show is called have a little insight. And Mm -hmm. so if there was one insight that you could leave people with today, what would it be? Wow. Just one. 
<laughs> Maybe I'll give you two. <laughs> but I Come mean, on, I'll, I'm not monogamous. Can I have more than one? <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll give you, it can be a compounded conjunctional sentence of ideas. <sighs> yeah, trust yourself enough to slow down hmm. because it might seem so little, but in that is where you're going to start to like know yourself more. You can pause. You don't have to jump into anything. You don't have to have an answer. You don't have to go into a conversation or an argument now. So trust those pauses because that's where you're going to come back to your grounded center. Mm, I love that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, with that, if people are looking to find you or get in touch with you, where are the, where are the best places to find you? Yeah. So the best place, see if everyone, what, oh, gotta, where's my finger? <laughs> see that. So if you want to come over to our community, our growing community at the intimacy hub, this is where you're going to have greater access to me, where you're going to have access to, um, my weekly live trainings, as well as my free ebook, which I'd love to send with you on the art of communication. And we can stay in touch there. And I'd love to just get on a connect call with anyone who just wants to say hello and, um, share a bit about themselves with me. Awesome. Well, uh, unless there's anything else that you'd like to touch on, I am just very grateful for your time. And I got two awesome conversations with you, which is a bonus, but I appreciate being able to share this with, with more people and just create a little bit more understanding, allow people to touch into themselves a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, I think we hit on a lot of that today. So thank you so much for your time and your openness and your vulnerability. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And the last thing, just because it yeah. came up for those of you who are listening in and on that non-monogamy piece, I do have a blog on how to create a successful threesome. And so I think I'll, I'll share it with Jenny and we'll, she'll go ahead and share it with all of you in, in the thread here. So yeah. Right. Absolutely. We will, um, we will leave a link to your website, your social media, your intimacy hub, and that blog article in the show notes of the podcast as well, which will come out on on Thursday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for anybody who's watching right now and wants to re-listen. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you everyone for listening and tuning into this podcast week after week. If you know a friend, two friends, three friends, a family member, your mom that you think might relate to this podcast or get something out of it, please share it with them. Take a minute to follow us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a rating and review. It just helps us reach more and more people. If you're looking to get in touch with Zipporah or interested in any of the resources she mentioned, they are all available in the show notes for this episode. They're on our website at havealittleinsight.com. You can also find us on Instagram. We are at Hallie Podcast. Or feel free to shoot me an email at havealittleinsight at gmail.com. I'm always looking to connect with more and more people. With that, folks, thank you again for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. My name is Jenny. I am your host. Take care, everybody.